This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. We saw Jesus gather his band of brothers, then we saw Jesus celebrate at a wedding. Now we're going to see him speak with a Jewish official late at night, Nicodemus, and describe to him what it means to be born again. Actually, what happens next in the Gospel of John is the cleansing of the temple, but I'm going to talk about that in the next episode when we discuss the woman at the well. But instead, I'm going to start with the Gospel of John's account of Nicodemus meeting Jesus. I think this is key for us because we live in a time when reinventing ourselves has become a huge thing in our culture. And it's important to understand why it's a huge thing in our culture and what Jesus does that is very like that, but very different. So here are the verses from John about Nicodemus, or at any rate, some excerpts. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel when I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand this? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The light has come into the world, and man loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. So that's the story. Nicodemus is a scholar, a wealthy man, and a Pharisee. We know this because he appears later in the gospel and because he's called a leader of the Jews. First of all, we're going to hear from John talking about the Jews a lot. And it's important to recognize that the word that's translated as the Jews is really Judah. And what John is doing is something where he's using Old Testament imagery to contrast one camp of Israel from another camp of the Jews. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, so he's very much a leader of the Jews of Judah. And Jesus will later say, unless your holiness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
The implication is that the Pharisees set a high bar of holiness. So Nicodemus is a good guy, not a bad guy. Well, except that he comes by night. What does that mean? Well, Bob Dylan sings about this. He says, so he won't be seen by men. So he kind of associates Nicodemus with the place that Jesus ends in his speech about how those who are evil prefer the darkness. And maybe that's happening here. You can picture him kind of like the show The Chosen does, as this fastidious man who's a genuine seeker of Jesus, but doesn't want to kind of reveal himself to others as such. So he kind of comes by night. Maybe he did it because he's a fair man and he doesn't believe in Jesus, but wants to give him an honest kind of sounding out. Or maybe he did it because he already had belief and wanted to talk to him at night either not to be seen by men or because night is a great time to talk to somebody about this kind of thing because you have all night. As soon as he meets Jesus, Jesus says this phrase that in our time we've heard over and over again, a man must be born again. In the translation I read, it's born anew. The Greek word that's used there can also mean born from above. But this is a common concept in religion, even apart from born again Christianity. The ancient Jewish tradition already talked about how when people entered Judaism, they were born again. And there's lots of pagan mystery cults that use this kind of language. And I actually think that's kind of cool. I spoke in the presentation about how I had this faith doubt. I didn't get why God didn't reach out to his people until many, many years late in the history of mankind and only gave us our Ten Commandments when we developed language, which is very recently in the vast sweep of mankind. And I mentioned that some of the first awakenings we see in mankind where people started to change and, and develop language and culture came not when we discovered farming and agriculture, but when we discovered religion. And there were these kind of signs of religion that were found in caves and these new temples that were being built. Well, you may have noticed, these things don't look at all like Judaism. They look like pagan mystery cults. So what's happening here? How is God abandoning his people to these odd forms of religion, these strange rites? Well, it's because the freedom that we had, that we kind of messed up in the Garden of Eden story, where we chose Satan's way of self-fulfillment rather than hearing God's way to walk with us, kind of led to these bumbling searches for God on our part and God's attempts to speak with us being misheard and misunderstood on his part. But even in those strange bumblings trying to find God, there is a strong element of truth. That's why it's such a great sell for Christians to talk about being born again, because it's always been a great sell for every religion to talk about being born again, rebooting your life somehow through some ceremony, some ritual to get restarted again. In fact, this is also the basis of several severe errors about humanity that have taken over in our day. So let's go through a little history of thought, shall we? There are a number of treatments about how culture in the West came to be what it's like today. The one that's most compelling for me starts with 17th century thinker René Descartes. He was a philosopher and a mathematician and an early scientist. And he saw that doubt leads to truth. 
the more he questioned things that he believed, the more truth he found. This is one of the bases for science. So he decided to doubt everything to find the most fundamental truth. He said, suppose, therefore, that all things I see are illusions. I believe that nothing has ever existed of everything my lying memory tells me. What is there then that can be taken as true? And he came up with this syllogism. All thinking things must exist. I am thinking, therefore I exist. This is the famous cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. So instead of starting with a creator, as the Bible does, or the question, what am I for, like Plato and Aristotle did, he started by doubting all of those things. And he got to a place where he focused just on his own consciousness, his own story. I think, therefore I am. He started to focus on himself as a disembodied thinker, separate from all other human beings. In literature before Descartes, you already saw people moving in this direction. You see it in Shakespeare and Cervantes. Shakespeare's Hamlet tries to understand himself as an individual apart from his roles and apart from his relationships. Don Quixote's thinking redefines him and the way he interacts with the world. In literature after Descartes, you see the romantic poets follow this line of self-reflection, focusing on their individual experiences more than their relationship to God or others. This is all part of the Enlightenment, and that's an ironic title as we'll see, but it has a new focus on the individual along with significant growth in science and skepticism, leading into modernity and then postmodernity. Now, these are all big concepts, and there's a couple of great treatments of them. Carl Truman has a great book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, spelling out the kind of intellectual path we took to where we get today. That book opens up with a statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And he says his grandfather, who died in 1994, would have heard that statement and found it utterly incoherent. Then he wonders why... Today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard not only as meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it is in some way to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to a phobia. So Truman's book kind of tries to answer the question, what happened in our understanding of ourselves to get us from where we were in classical thought to where we are in postmodernity? Rod Dreher does the same thing in the second chapter of the Benedict Option, where he goes from William of Ockham, who is a 13th century thinker, to today. But I think the best explanation of it is uh, Bishop Barron's masterful talk to the Knights of Malta, Ideas Have Consequences, The Philosophers Who Shaped 2020. That He, he always talks about how that it took him by surprise that that talk just went viral and so many people have watched it. It doesn't surprise me because I think a lot of people are trying to understand how the heck did we get to this place where we think we can totally reinvent ourselves. So I'll touch kind of on the way I teach this in my class and have for years, but also on Bishop Barron's way. But I always tell my classes at Benedictine College about Rousseau and Voltaire and how the church had really truly made a mess out of much of European civilization with church corruption and being part and parcel with the state and making people feel really abused and misused by temporal power and by the church's power. But then in the 19th century with modernity, Ludwig Feuerbach came along and said, history is a progressive disenchantment. He said, people used to believe in local gods and the Christian God was brought in 
and kind of push those aside. Man invented gods to understand the world and console himself. And when they could no longer believe in these local gods, they took the Christian God, which is a much more sophisticated concept. But he said, now we've gotten to a place where we can push that God aside also. Karl Marx followed and picked up on that idea and said, we didn't invent God to distract ourselves. Rather, the authorities created God and all the other concepts we have fallen for in order to distract the people. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. It keeps us all docile. Then Sigmund Freud began publishing his ideas that made our individual psychological stories more central to our identity, stressing that we all create our own realities and that other people tend to mess us up as much as they tend to help us, and that belief in God is, quotes, infantile and feminine, end quote, and that repeating prayers is a kind of OCD complex. So there was this idea that religion was foisted on us, that it made use of a psychological weakness that we all have, and this is something that Richard Dawkins and others in the 21st century have pushed to the max, right? But back in the 19th century, Nietzsche famously said, God is dead, and identified Christianity as a slave morality, a way to make the enslaved feel more comfortable in their bad condition. He began the trend of talking about values, not virtues, and not objective values, but personal values. For Nietzsche, we all forge our own style of being in the world and create our own identity. John Paul Sartre, in the 20th century, took Nietzsche one step further, saying, we each have to totally decide who we are. He said, quotes, man is nothing else but what he makes of himself, end quotes. He said, existence precedes essence, an idea that launched existentialism. Now, that's trippy wording that's hard to understand, but Bishop Barron gave a great example that makes it crystal clear what it means. He was riffing off of the name of the movie, The Shape of Water. And he said, what shape is water? Well, water takes whatever shape of the container you put it in. Water can be shaped like a water bottle or like your drinking glass or like a, the dog's bowl or like a box if you pour it in a box. You determine its shape. So our existence is the same, Sartre and the other existentialists would say. We make of ourselves whatever we want. Postmodernity has now taken all of this to a new extreme. In literary criticism, for instance, this postmodern theory of lit crit tells us that Every individual makes something totally different out of what we read. In art, we can now depict a flower with a stem and petals if we want, or a splotch of color showing essence of flower, or with a dark box that ironically we title flower. All of this means that today we have the ability to say who we are, and that's great from one perspective. It feels very freeing to finally be able to say, this is, this is me the way I want to be. But from another perspective, it's not freeing at all. I know in my personal history, it has not been freeing at all. It kind of puts us in a perpetual high school where we have to figure out who we are and define ourselves. But we remain always what we are biologically, human beings with bodies and an X or XY chromosome, human beings who are hardwired to be in community with others and are unhappy unless we're in community with others. So... We redefine ourselves, but we face the fact that others might reject our definition. We have to put this whole apparatus into place to try to force people to accept who we say we are and this 
way the government is particular laws to say that we can do what we want based on who we say we are. But even if we get everyone's buy-in, and that's a big if, but even then, reinventing yourself is exhausting. I don't know about you, but I was really bad at high school. Heck, I was bad at elementary school. I could never figure out what I was supposed to do to be both an individual, like I was supposed to be, everyone kept saying, with my own style, and also be accepted, which I knew I wanted and which I couldn't quite figure out how to do. I couldn't figure out how to both fit in and be utterly myself the way I was supposed to. So I kind of forged my own style, but I'm not very good at forging styles. So I was just kind of a nerd and an unhappy nerd at that who never quite fit in and was always figuring out what I had to do and failing. I was never suicidal, but I see how that happens. And with the rise of this culture of self-invention, you see an enormous rise, an alarming rise in the suicide rate as people face the fact that they cannot figure out how to be this person they are supposed to be. And they end up opting out in the worst way possible. And the suicide rate is especially high with those who invent themselves the most or feel like they need to invent themselves the most, people with gender dysphoria. Well, Jesus tells a compelling story about us that offers a better way. I think, in fact, that one of the huge joys of being Christian is the joy of complete acceptance. It's the joy of this particular verse that you see people tattoo on their bodies and put on signs and hold up at football games. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. People love that verse because there's nothing more satisfying than being accepted and loved by somebody. Human beings, like I said, are hardwired for community. And when somebody notices, appreciates, and approves of us for who we are, that feeling fills us with delight and fulfillment. In fact, the feeling is so strong that we tend to seek it cheaply, trying too hard to be accepted in superficial ways by reinventing ourselves in our profile picture on social media, uh, trying to get as many followers and likes as possible on the performative things we do, or apart from social media, trying to make it such that people notice our bodies, either by the way we dress or by working out, or try to get people to notice us with cool clothes or a cool car. But honest-to-goodness, loving acceptance is powerful, not just because we have this human need for it, but because we're wounded. The pain of rejections, small and large, that we've felt throughout our lives have taken their toll, leaving our souls calloused and wary, expecting the worst from others. When we get the best from others, it's so overwhelmingly delightful. There's something of that in Nicodemus. So he's sneaking out to see Jesus for fear of his Jewish colleagues, But he's looking for love and keeping his guard up at the same time. Jesus' famous words, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life, are like a lifeline to Nicodemus. And they do the same thing for us. They bring this joy of unconditional acceptance. After painful experience has taught us that people want to condemn us, that love is conditional, it's judgmental, it's filled with disappointment in us, disappointment in ourselves because we never quite measure up, we finally hear from somebody who wants to just accept us for who we are. 
So Nicodemus and us have a lot in common. We feel lost because we're in this environment where we have to reinvent ourselves. Nicodemus feels lost because he's in this environment where he can't quite measure up to the grueling standards of being a Pharisee, where by his own power he has to try to fulfill the law and he just can't do it. We are all lost because we feel a little bit like Jason Bourne. He's that spy that with an amnesia who has to figure out who he is while hiding from good guys and bad guys who are all after him. He realizes that he has all these skills, but he also realizes that his skills are mostly used for killing. They're mostly used for evil. That's kind of how we are. We realize that we're really good at sinning. In some ways, that's the, what we're best at. We long to become something more, but however hard we try, we are still in the same old lost souls we always were. To help Nicodemus understand how to break free, Jesus refers to an old, obscure story from the book of Numbers to make his point crystal clear. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, he tells Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, as a Jewish leader, would have understood exactly what Jesus was referring to. The Hebrew people who were slaves to a master who kept them working were finally freed by God. They went off into the desert, finally free, but they found freedom exhausting. They found themselves longing for slavery because they had their creature comforts taken care of there and they didn't have to fend for themselves. And they said in Numbers 21, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They prefer the rations that their slave masters gave them to manna from heaven. They prefer the degradation of slavery to the difficult responsibilities of freedom. In the story, quote, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The people repent, ask for relief, and get it. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live, says the Lord. They do it, and it works. The psychological lesson in this is pretty clear. What is the serpent an image of? It's an image of the sin that we all heard about, where Adam and Eve chose Satan over God, choosing the serpent over the Father. Jesus wants them to look at their sin, remember it, reject it, and thereby come to their new life in God. It's like a trick a rehabilitation program might suggest to an addict. Keep a token of the time you hit rock bottom, and whenever you're tempted to use again, look at that token and remember how bad that was. As St. Bede put it, quote, the sins which drag down soul and body to destruction are appropriately represented by the serpents because they were fiery and poisonous, artful at bringing about death, end quotes. So that's what our sins are. But then something crazy happens. Just seeing the image of their sin takes the poison away. God makes the symbol of their sin the very thing that takes away their suffering. Jesus goes even further in the crucifixion. Jesus became sin for our sake, St. Paul puts it very starkly. That's why he is, quotes, aptly made known by the bronze serpent, writes St. Bede. Both the snake and the cross are images of what Vatican II called the deranged self-love that we have to purify ourselves from through the power of Christ's cross and resurrection. 
We were trapped in sin, so Jesus came down, took the sin onto himself, and did away with it on the cross. The cross becomes our entryway into his life. It becomes our ticket out of the exhausting game of inventing ourselves. The image of Jesus on the cross says two things. It says, you are right, you are trapped in sin, you can't overcome it, and sin is terrible. Sin is so terrible that it overcame God himself. But it also says, God himself loves you despite your sin. He loves you so much, he will allow himself to be crucified for your sin. Jesus tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That prophecy is fulfilled in Catholic churches, each of which has a crucifix front and center, lifted up for us to have our sin and our glory always in front of us. Because that's the final meaning of the twisted sign of the serpent and the cross. It's like a barbarian putting a decapitated head of his enemy on the gateposts to show that he's defeated the enemy. St. Bede says that it's a taunt to evil. The resurrection tells us, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? You are overthrown by the cross. You are slain by him who is the giver of life. You are without breath, dead, without motion, even though you keep the form of a serpent lifted high on a pole. End quote. Jesus comes into our world and suffers for us, not to appease an angry God, but to take our poison onto himself. The gospel, of course, says it this way. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In the cross, Jesus has turned the sign of shame into the symbol of our hope, as uh, Father David Pavanka puts it. The crucifix shows how horrifying our sin is. It killed God. It also shows just how hopeful our Lord is. God killed sin. He wants to take away our poison, flood us with light, and pull us up to his level. And he can only lift us up in his glory if we join him in his suffering. And he can only bring us home if we believe. But that is why you hear so much joy from people about being saved and being born again. People dance and shout for joy and can't stop talking about it when Jesus cures them. It's the same for us. By grace you have been saved through faith, says St. Paul, and this is not from you, it is a gift from God. Nothing we do can bring about this cure. It comes from the immeasurable riches of the grace in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ, and it's a miracle. This is the very opposite of the self-invention that the world demands we undergo. Suddenly, this burden is lifted. You no longer have to invent yourselves. You get to be yourself and tap into the Holy Spirit, the wind who blows where he will over the walls of the maze, the Holy Spirit who refreshes and enlivens you. St. John's Gospel opens up with the phrase, the word became flesh. Now that word, the word, is actually the logos. The logos is the order of the universe. So he's saying the order of the universe, the logos, became flesh. This is the very opposite of what Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Descartes retreats from his body into his mind to find who he is. Jesus leaves his divinity and takes on a body to show us who he is and who we are. And we are made in his image and likeness. The more we reject our bodies, the more we say our bodies don't tell the story of who we are, the more we say we need to change our bodies to be who the world wants us to be or to fit into some mental image of who we think we have to be, the more frustrated and anxious we become. Instead of opting out through suicide, we can opt out by being born again from above, by getting a fresh start in and through God, through Christ's death and resurrection.
The way to be more like Jesus is to be in our bodies, renewed and accepting of ourselves because God accepts us for who we are. This is the very opposite of a slave morality. A slave morality tells you that you have to live up to others' expectations. You have to continually be doing the heavy lifting of inventing yourself. This is a morality that frees slaves to understand the importance of their lives, and it frees urban teens and suburban kids and working adults to accept who they are. So we talked about John Paul Sartre, the father of existentialism, who talked about the need to invent ourselves. Well, I think another John Paul had a much better way to look at it. St. John Paul II had the perfect way to express what existentialism has to offer, this self-possession, this appropriate personal autonomy and self-determination that is very attractive to us, and unite it with the best of what Christianity has to offer. He summed it up in a phrase, become who you are. That's what Jesus means when he says to be born again. We all want to step forward and say unapologetically, this is me. Like Kiala Settle in The Greatest Showman. I don't know if you've seen the video in The Greatest Showman. It's a video of a rehearsal or something where she talks about she was finally able to step out from behind her music stand and insists, look out world, here I come. This is me, this is me. Well, it's a great, great video. It's got like 63 million views on YouTube. But she sounds almost like Nicodemus in that song when she says, I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are, but I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there is a place for us, for we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood, going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I meant to be. This is me. It's a beautiful moment, and we all want that. We all want to be loved and accepted and applauded, like she was, for who we are. We all want to become who you are, as John Paul II put it. We all want to be born anew, as Jesus put it. We all want to be the truest version of who we are in the image and likeness of God, called to share in his very divinity. Now, look what my daughter randomly texted me. Just read the text. No context. I don't, she's never sent me a text like that before. Should I say that? Is God saying say this in the podcast? I'll say it just yes. in case God is saying to say it. We interrupted this uh, recording because I just got a text from my daughter. Uh, she's quoting a Dominican theologian who says, the only really powerful and really compelling force is strong conviction joined to a life of virtue. The very people who require you to court their favor despise a flatterer and surrender to a master. If you are of this world, the world will love you because you are its own, but its silent disdain will be a measure for your fall. This perverse world loves at the bottom only saints. This cowardly world dreams of heroes. One last thing we need to cover before we close this out on Nicodemus. And that's that extended quote that Jesus has about he is the light that has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. So along with acceptance and personal identity, Jesus brings us light. Like we said, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime. He comes cloaked in darkness. So he understood right away what it meant to step into the glow of truth and no longer prefer darkness to light. 
In the dark, we move cautiously, we stumble. In the light, everything is laid bare and made clear to us. In the spiritual darkness, we cannot tell right from wrong. We cannot tell true from false. The world is colorless and bleak. We aren't free in the dark because we could run into something or be attacked by someone at any time or something. We are like Jason Bourne in the dark, lost in a maze with no idea who we are or where we are. In the light, we see right away where to go. We can understand what's right in front of us and we're surrounded on all sides by brilliant color. Now that Nicodemus has met Jesus, who accepts him and cures him, there is no longer any reason to fear the light where his works may be clearly seen. We will see him step forward like Keala settle later in the story, defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin and later finding a place for him to be buried. But I wanted to bring up here Pope Francis's first encyclical, Lumen Fide, The Light of Faith. Actually, this was written by Pope Benedict, then revised, extended, and released by Pope Francis. It starts out exactly where we did with Nietzsche telling us to invent ourselves. The encyclical says, quote, The young Nietzsche encouraged his sister Elizabeth to take risks, to tread new paths with all the uncertainty one must find on his way, adding that if you want peace of soul and happiness, then believe. If you want to be a follower of truth, then seek, end quote. The encyclical kind of describes what's going on here. Quote, From this starting point, Nietzsche has to develop his critique of Christianity for diminishing the full meaning of human existence and stripping life of novelty and adventure. In the process, faith came to be associated with darkness, a leap in the dark, to be taken in the absence of light. End quote. But then the encyclical describes exactly what we have been talking about. And it says, and here's another quote, the light of autonomous reason is not enough to illumine the future. Ultimately, the future remains shadowy and fraught with fear of the unknown. As a result, humanity renounced the search for a great light, for truth itself, in order to be content with smaller lights, which illumine the fleeting moment, yet prove incapable of showing the way. In the absence of light, everything becomes confused. It's impossible to tell good from evil or the road to our destination from other roads, which take us in endless circles going nowhere. End quote. This actually makes me think of migratory birds. Modernity has affected migratory birds in much the way it's affected us. What is it like a billion birds a year who die running into buildings during their migration? They see these artificial lights and their minds trick them into thinking that what they're seeing are reflections of the moon or stars and they end up dead. Now, well, it's the same with moths. They are attracted to the natural luminescence that connects them with each other. But when they see supersized versions in electric lights, they go toward them over and over again against this false light until they fry. Well, we're all attracted to the light but the artificial lights distract us as we go from one piece of truth to another instead of seeking the whole truth. The encyclical says, quotes, There's an urgent need then to see once again the faith is a light. For once the flame of faith dies out, all other lights begin to dim. The light of faith is unique since it is capable of illumining every aspect of human existence. A light this powerful cannot come from ourselves, but from a more primordial source. In a word, it must come from God, 
We need the light of the foundational memory of the life of Jesus, which revealed his perfectly trustworthy love, a love capable of triumphing over death. We come to see that faith does not dwell in shadow and gloom. It is a light for our darkness, end quote. So this is why people sing with such joy of finding the light. But I want to end by saying to beware of one thing. Sometimes we Christians are so certain we have the light that we look at the world like everything is 100% clear to us and 100% false to everybody else. This approach failed in history. Uh, It's failing those who want to reinvent themselves now and claim that they see everything with utter clarity and that we're utterly wrong. The encyclical puts it this way, the light of God does not provide arguments which explain everything. Rather, his response is that of an accompanying presence, a history of goodness which touches every story of suffering and opens up a ray of light. Faith is not a light which scatters all our darkness, but a lamp which guides our feet in the night and suffices for the journey. End quote. This always makes me think of a nighttime trip my family took to California one year. We live in Kansas, but my wife's parents live in California, a 24-hour drive away. To visit California, we would leave Kansas in the evening and drive all night so that the kids would sleep through the drive. Well, one year, as it happened, we left on the 4th of July in the evening as it was getting dark. And as I drove through Kansas, after sundown, I saw the horizon lighting up all around me with fireworks in the distance, little bursts of light showing uh, where little civilizations were out in the encamped in, in the darkness. To go where I had to go, I had to keep plunging forward into that very darkness with just my headlights illuminating enough of the road for me to know what's right in front of me, following the path of those who came before me in the maze, if you will, to lead the way to California. That's kind of how it is for all of us. The light of faith helps us take one step forward at a time, knowing that one day the sun will rise and we'll see everything as it is and as it should be in the light of Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.